You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Today is part three of a three-part series that we've entitled The End. So it actually is the end of the end. Uh, We're actually here. So in week one, uh, we looked at this idea that for Christ followers, the end is actually the beginning. It's the beginning and the start of our existence with Jesus Christ. No more pain, no more sorrow, only joy and happiness in its purest form. And that is the hope for our faith. A hope for our faith is not here and now. It's after we we're, leave this physical body and we spend eternity within Jesus. That's our hope. And we've learned that the end actually begins with when Jesus returns. It talks about his, his second coming. He came first time as an infant. Um, he came, he's coming back for his church. And we knew that we talked about that as the rapture. For the followers of Jesus, we really have nothing to fear, only an amazing future to look forward to. In week two, last week, we talked about the fact that there are two judgments that that are talked about in the book of Revelation. One is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ followers will receive rewards for what they have done here on earth. Now, I I wanted to reemphasize again that the rewards are not the basis of our entry it's not the basis of our salvation. So we, we receive salvation by grace through faith. However, once we're there in heaven, there's an acknowledgement and rewards for the way we've lived our life here on earth. And it's very clear about that. That's the judgment seat of Christ. We also talked about the fact that there's the great white throne of judgment that's talked about, which is judgment for those who have not made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I'm curious to know who thinks they have a reasonably good handle on the content of the Bible. Not, you know, I'm not asking for a Bible expert. You've got a reasonable kind. You've got a good sense for that. Anybody feel like you've got a good so, Okay. Susan, find me in the, or tell me about the passage where it talks about how we can bake a pecan pie. <laughs> bake a, what's the recipe for a good pecan pie in the Bible? Okay, but you're you're going you're you're going too far. That's not what I asked. Uh, that's not helpful. Okay, stick stick to the topic here. Kind of work work with me here, there. So, uh, okay. Um, I mean, that's kind of a goofy question, isn't it? We don't think about that. That's not really. Um, that's just not going to be there. Uh, we wouldn't think that that would be there. So, what? Okay, let me ask another one. Why? What does the Bible say as to why? How, how does chlorophyll make grass green? What does the Bible tell us about that? It doesn't say anything. All right. Get my, okay. Here's the thing. The Bible was never intended to answer every question in life. That wasn't his intent and focus. The Bible is not Google. Okay? Now, and, and I, I say that for, somewhat facetiously, but somewhat sincerely, because many people approach the Bible that way. They think that it has to provide all the answers and that we that and we, we predetermine what sometimes what that content needs to be and what it needs to look like. And so when it comes to the Bible, um, sometimes we want it to say things that never it was intended to say. And so while that there's historical elements in it, the Bible is not 
a history book, per se. While the Bible has poems, it's not a book of poetry. And while the Bible contains personal letters, it's not a diary. And similarly, while the book of Revelation talks about the end of time, I would suggest that it is not a roadmap to the future. It talks about that, but that's not its intent and purpose. So whereas the primary purpose of the Bible is the revelation of God, it's God revealing to his creation who he is, his nature, his character. It's basically revealing who God is. Revel, or the book of Revelation specifically is about the supremacy, the authority, and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation was written for. It wasn't to help us understand the details of future, but it was in, through describing what's happening in the future, Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the bigger picture. That's the bigger intent for the purpose of the book of Revelation. So when we try to use the book of Revelation only as a means to understand the future, it gets a little strange. You know, and it's, if it's only about predicting the future, what do we do with things like when it talks about dragons or the beast or 666 is the number that's there or beings with 12 stars, a being with 10 horns or one with six wings and there's a description of four bowls of incense and two olive trees and there's all these these the symbolic things that are in there and if 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 we're approaching revelation only to understand the future sometimes those get in the way because it's impossible here and now today with our limited knowledge to actually say with extreme precision and certainty this is the only way to look at this passage or to understand this the thing and that some confusion sometimes can actually cause fear and anxiety about what's coming because some of the stuff in there is really scary, um, if we're just really honest about it. So I would suggest that the book of Revelation makes sense as a collection of prophecies only when we approach it as a handbook of worship that reveals Jesus Christ. When we approach the book of Revelation only as a means to predict the future, it can lead to confusion and fear about what is to come. The book of Revelation should not make you afraid. But it should build your faith and cause you to be excited about who it is we follow, Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to, in the next few minutes, I just want to give you a way to approach the book of Revelation that I hope will actually build your faith and make you excited or cause you to be excited about what is um, what's to happen. Um, a little context. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John who also wrote the book of John, the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That same John wrote the book of Revelation. Now, and scholars you know, uh, looking at history and different things, they, they think that they, they date the writing of this around 95 A.D., about 60 years after Jesus Christ died and was resurrected and went to heaven. So 60 years later, Jesus has been gone. Um, and... <clears throat> John is the only one of the original 12 disciples left. You had the 12, we know Judas hung himself, you know, early on in the time of crucifixion. The other 10 
we believe that the, the tradition has it that the other ten were, have all been martyred by this point in time. They've all been killed, taking the gospel to different places. And John himself is actually writing this from the Isle of Patmos, where he was basically banished. So the other thing that was happening, if you're familiar with history of that time period, Israel was under Roman rule. That whole part of the Mediterranean world was under Roman rule and authority. Romans, Romans were ruthless. Um, and so this was not a good time. And many times, many of the Roman emperors would pick Christians for special persecution and killing, largely because the Roman emperors liked people to think of them as gods. They were deity. And they actually would have statues made, and the expectation was that you would worship that statue of the Roman god. So anyone who refused to bow down and worship their statue was taken as an act of treason. And so they would, re they, and so as, as response to that, many Christians, because they said, we only have one Lord that we bow to. We won't bow to your statue because, you know, I know the Lord and you're not him. Um, that's not, we're not doing this. And so they then many times suffered persecution and even death. That's the climate in which John is writing. So John had actually had been banished in the site of the Isle of Patmos as he's writing this. Um, <clears throat> So for the, um, I just lost my place here. So as John is writing this book, it's actually, he's describing it in this letter. It's, it's written to seven groups of churches in present day Turkey. So there's seven churches that he talks about. He writes, he's this letter, this, this vision he's describing is written to them, and he's talking about what's to come and what's happening with them. Patmos is actually off the coast of Turkey, in between Greece and Turkey and that part of the Mediterranean, um, but closer to Turkey. And so he's writing this letter from prison um, on this island. So as, as we look at this letter, my intent is, is to actually lay out the fact that the, I think the book is actually, there's five distinct sections. And in each of those sections, Jesus Christ is portrayed differently. And when you understand that in this section, he's portrayed this way, and in this section, he's portrayed this way, for me, it was just the sense of, okay. And it was just helpful to understand that and when I take it as a whole, it's kind of overwhelming. When I take it in chunks, it just seemed to work better and understand a little bit more about how John was perceiving Jesus and how he was being revealed. So we've got uh, five ways or five sections. The first section is actually in chapters one through three. And in, chapter, in this first section, Jesus is revealed as the Alpha and Omega, and he is returning soon. Revelation 1, 7 through 8 says, Jesus, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So it shall be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The second coming of, of Jesus um, this is actually, we're talking about a third coming of Jesus. So initially, the first coming was as an infant. The second coming is when he comes for his church. 
The third time he comes back, he's coming back with his church. And that's, so he's coming back with the cloud, or coming back with the church. Um, and then every eye will see him, and it becomes very evident what's happening here. And he says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. These are Alpha and Omega are, are part of the Greek alphabet. Their first letter is Alpha, and their last letter is Omega. So if Jesus was talking in English, he would say, I am the A and the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the first and last. Everything is contained within me, which is really an amazing thing to say. And can only be said when you literally can exist outside of time and space, when you're all in all for us. And so and John goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, the hair, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as the snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Hold on, don't advance it. Go back, go back. In his right hand he held seven stars. And I, from my mind, I said, what does that look like? You know, stars are big and everything. The reference here is to the seven churches that are talked about in chapters 2 and 3. So Jesus, what he's saying is there is that Jesus, you're in his hands. He's holding you. And then when it talks about, about out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. This is not a Transformer science fiction movie, you know, where you've, you know, it's, it's what he's talking about here. The, the double-edged sword is actually the word of God. The word. Remember in John, the book of John, the gospel, the first chapter, in the beginning was the word. And the word was God, and the word was with God. Jesus is the word. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we know the same writer was both these books, because of just the similarity in how he talks about certain things. So out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, which was the word of God. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I'm sorry, now we'll go to the next one. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades, remember, was that temporal state um, for those who are not going to be spending eternity with God. Look at this, though. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. And for our purpose, you could say, and hell. Imagine that I was dead, but now I'm alive, and I hold it all in my hands. I, just the imagery that's there, and just what this would have meant to the readers of John's letter, these are people who are facing persecution that we can't understand in this country. But yet they're being told that you're in his hands. The one who holds you was dead, but now he's alive. And not only is he alive, he has conquered death forever and ever for all of us. Him. In this first 
image of Jesus. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and he's returning soon. It's in chapters 1, through two, one two, 3. The second image of Jesus we see, the second section, is from chapters 4 through 5. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the scroll. 28 times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. So that's a common metaphor as we understand who that is. And beginning in chapter 5 um, of, of, of this section of Revelation, we see God is sitting on his throne and he's holding a scroll. And though the scroll is, is kind of like a last will and testament and tells who's, who's you know, following um, Christ and who's not. It's a declaration of all that's to come, what's to happen to the, all the people of the earth, and it's all about the final judgment. But as, as John is describing this, they realize that there's no one qualified to open the scroll. And, and, and John begins to panic, and he's starting to freak out. In fact, it says that I wept and wept and wept. He was so upset because he always wanted to see what was in the scroll. No one could open it. No one could be found. And then in Revelation chapter 5, in verses 6 through 9, or in verse 6, he said, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Again, he's referring to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do we have verse 8 as well? No, okay. Um. How about verse 9? Okay, there we go. Sorry about that. I asked for the wrong verse. <laughs> and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. The Son of God who is the sacrificial lamb who gave his life for the redemption for all of us. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Now remember, this imagery here is not just the fact that Jesus was referred to as the Lamb of God. Um, John, the Gospel of John, is the only um, is the only one that comes. Remember the story of John the Baptist when Jesus goes to get baptized, and John the Baptist sees him, and so what does he say? He says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." The only gospel that actually acknowledges that encounter. And so we see that there, that reference to that. This idea of being the sacrificial lamb also goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the Exodus, the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were enslaved and God was in the process of getting them out and the, and the, the, the angel of death was going to pass over. And the only way the Israelites could be spared is if they took a lamb, the blood of a lamb and put some on the, on the sides and the top of the doorposts. If that blood was there, it covered those who were in the house. They were safe. The angel of death passed over, but they were safe. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb for us, the one who provided the blood that made us safe from these eternal judgments that are to come. So in section one, we have Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, and he's returning soon. Section two, uh, we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the scroll. Uh, 
And section three is where things get really interesting. Um, this, if, if, again, if from an outsider looking in, this word gets really weird. But this is the longest section. It's actually chapters 6 through 18. And if you're watching a, a TV show on end times or reading a book on end times, most of them focus on this section. It's a section of, from chapters 6 through chapters 18. It's where we find the discussions on the mark of the beast, you know, the, the number of 666 and the Antichrist, and, and all these, these things are, are happening here. In, in, uh, in section three, section three is we see Jesus is the righteous judge who righteously judges the earth. Now, there's three different judgments that are talked about, and I'm, I'm not going to get into all the different symbols and what they mean. We would really be here a long time. I know that's, uh, that's not where we need. There's a lot out there um, as to what some of those things might be. Let me, I do want to take a minute, though, and, and talk about what the three different judgments are that are, are happening in this section of, of Scripture. And this is, I, don't, I don't believe this is in your outline, but I do have it on the screen. There's three judgments. The first one is called the seal judgment, and it's in Revelation chapter 6. Um, and you see it, in, in, and also it's actually talked about in, in Revelation chapter 8. In, in this judgment, there's four riders of the apocalypse. The moon turns blood red. The tremendous bloodshed from war. A quarter of the world dies from famine and plagues and wild beasts. Um, not a good time to be around. Okay, so that's, that's the, the seal judgments. Then we also talk about the trumpet judgments. Also in Revelation 8. Then it, also, it begins talking about in, in chapter 11. And in this judgment, we see hail and fire mixed with blood that falls from the sky. Poisonous locusts. I mean, locusts aren't bad enough. They've got to be poisonous as well. A third of the vegetation is destroyed. A third of the sea animals die. A third of the water is contaminated. A third of light is lost. A third of the world is killed. It's it worse. It's important to remember that it's during these times, though, that there's still time for people to repent, repent and turn to God. Until that final judgment occurs, people have opportunity. And then lastly, it talks about the bowl judgments. And that's in Revelation 16. In this one, we see that there's sores on people who have the mark of the beast. Water turns to blood and everything in it dies. The sun scorches people. There's a huge earthquake. A hailstorm with a hundred pound hailstones. Imagine the damage that'll do in your car. <laughs> so there, again, there's there's a lot of that's in there, a lot of imagery, and 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 clearly what's 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 being told. This is not a good time to be alive and to be around. But here's the other thing, too. We know whether, we talked about this before, we don't, it doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, as far as when the rapture occur, or, or mid-trib, or post-trib, by this time we're, we're, we're gone. Um, and so that's, that's a good thing. We don't need to be at the, in, here at this part in time. Um, and I, I do need to say, um, you know, last week I talked about, you know, talk about judgments. Our culture doesn't like judgment. <laughs> it, there's this idea of fairness, and and to judge somebody is, is perceived as being unfair, regardless of the action. The act of judgment is perceived as being unfair, and 
I mentioned last week that this idea that people, a God that would send someone to hell, is their perception of God that way. They've actually, I know some people actually literally turn their back on Christianity as a whole for that very concept and idea. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? The problem with that perception is that their default is that everyone goes to heaven. That's not right. The default is everyone goes to hell. That's the default. The only reason why we're not all going to hell is because there has been a way for us to avoid that. And so us, those who have received Jesus Christ and made him Lord and Savior of their life, they've got that covering and they are redeemed from that judgment. So, yes, that's not fair because we don't get the judgment we deserve. We get grace instead. But that's, it's not fair, but it is just. And actually, John actually talks about that in, in, in verse 5 of chapter 16. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. So those very actions and that very act of judgment is, is deemed to be a just judgment. So Jesus is the Alpha and Omega and is returning soon. Section 1. Section 2 is Jesus is the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the scroll. Section 3. Jesus is the righteous judge who righteously judges the earth. In section 4. Jesus is the King of Kings as he returns with his church. And that's in chapters 19 through 20. In Revelation, uh, it's in verse 11 of chapter 19. <clears throat> I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Um, that's not a Hollywood concept. You know, the guy riding it on the white horse at the end, you know, to save the day. That, that, they, they stole that from the Bible, okay? That, that's actually, we've, we've the, uh, Jesus established that as the hero riding in. Before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has, his, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is... Our Savior. And then the last section, we see this in chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the bridegroom as he takes his bride, the redeemed, to the heavenly city. <clears throat> Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away with the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The new heaven and new earth, we talked about that actually in in previous weeks, but Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Um, Some of you uh, know that our daughter, um, Sarah, is between two brothers as far as uh, where she comes in our, our family birth thank you or order things um, she, they were, she was married in this past March and uh, she's the only one of our kids married um, much to Betsy's dismay um, but uh, there, there were times however that I wondered who enjoyed being the bride more Sarah or Betsy um, because Betsy this is a season of self-actualization reliving all this and the whole idea of being a bride and preparing and preparing for the wedding. And, and so when she reads about, you know, the being the bride of Christ, it's an exciting thing for her to think about because of just her experience in that. Right? And I, I think for many of women, that's true. All of us men, he's like, wait, I, I have to be what? You know, we get to be who? What's this bride stuff? Uh, we don't get that at all. Okay, but men, um, <laughs> I guess my encouragement is don't get hung up on this metaphor. Um, because it, it, what it's saying, though, is that the, the union that we have with Jesus Christ is like that between a husband and wife, a groom and the bride. Don't forget about the specific roles. Just recognize that what is happening and what Jesus is, that relationship. What, what John is doing is saying it's the most precious, even holy relationship, pure and special that we can even imagine. The best that can come to it is the idea of a bride and groom. The love and the passion they have for one another is what we're going to get to experience when we're with Jesus Christ. In the end... The devil is defeated. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and we get to reign with Jesus forever. In in, uh, verse 17 of 22, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. You know, we talked about this last week. The word Maranatha, Come, Lord Jesus. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. The invitation is there for all. Whether or not we have, we've, we've walked with Jesus for most of our life or whether this is still something we're still considering, the invitation to all of us is to come, come and to walk with him. So in Revelation, John acknowledges that the times are tough. The things that are happening are terrible, but... In light of all this, in light of all the things you're going through in life, and all, in, in, in spite of all the troubles and, and the circumstances, all the things that you're encountering, in the midst of all this, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, and he is coming soon. And he's going to take us away from all of this pain and suffering and, and all the things that were our struggles, and that will be no more. Jesus is the Lamb of God who is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is the righteous judge who will judge those who need to be judged. 
They will receive judgment in the end. Jesus is the king of kings as he returns with his church. And Jesus is the bridegroom coming for his bride, the church. The very last verse in Revelation, it closes, the whole letter closes with these words. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. So Jesus says himself in this vision of John, the whole thing closes with Jesus affirming, yes, I'm coming soon. And John then says, come, Lord Jesus. And then he says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. What an amazing testimony and story. Come, Lord Jesus. Those who are thirsty, those who want water, living water, can come and receive it. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And John ends this with a blessing on his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, the book of Revelation um, is really... uh, It's interesting for many. It can be confusing for others. Father, what it does, though, it just reveals your son, Jesus. And it shows us that he is so much more than we could ever understand or even believe. That we, if we need him to be the conquering hero, he is that. We need him to be the loving, gracious, caring spouse. He is the bridegroom. He is the once and for all, the beginning and the end. He is all in all. He is everything we need. So, Father, if there's any here who are experiencing a gap in their life where there, there's something missing, I pray, Lord Jesus, and ask that they would find that that gap filled with Jesus Christ this day, that they would invite him into that area of their life. And if there's any, Lord Jesus, who have yet to actually make that decision, who have yet to invite not just Jesus into their life, but make that decision to follow him, to be intentional about pursuing Jesus Christ, may they make that decision this day as well. Father, as we come to understand who Jesus is, this walk of faith becomes very different. It's not a list of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. It's all about this dynamic relationship. It's about an amazing God and Savior who has given his life for us, not just in death, but has has lived for his church, each of us. So, Lord, I ask and pray that we would be recipients of that, that those of us today who may be struggling in those areas would receive it freely and graciously, we pray. Father, I again just ask for your blessing and for your favor upon each one that hears these words. Lord, that our hope would be, that our joy would be full, that we would have hope and expectation for what lies ahead, not uncertainty and fear. So, Lord, I commit all these things to you now. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.